Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. It's awesome to be back this morning, uh, to be here worshiping with everyone. Uh, It's great to see uh, a full house. I'm glad everyone was able to make it out. Uh, We are, uh, well, first of all, uh, if you're new, uh, my name is Lee, and I'm a member uh, here at Harvest. Um, And as you know, if you've been here for a while, we've been in Isaiah um, for a while. Last week, Peter said uh, it feels like seven years, but um, I thought it was more like it feels like uh, we started when Isaiah was a new release, uh, was... (laughs) still on the New York Times bestsellers list, but uh, we're working through, we'll get there sooner than later. Uh, we're almost to the 60s, and then you think like that's the you know, uh, decade of chapters, if you will. So we're close. We're getting there. Today we're in Isaiah 58. We're going to talk about some uh, pretty common themes that have been running throughout uh, the entire book of Isaiah. We've talked about it a few times. Um, a couple months ago, uh, Brother Michael preached a sermon very similar Uh, with a chapter that had uh, a lot of the same focus uh, with um, true religious practice. Uh, What does it mean to, uh, for your actions, the things you do on the external? Um, uh, What does it mean for it to be real and and how it reflects what's on the inside? Uh, Religion has a bad way of uh, taking a lot of traditions and these these things we do and kind of making that what it's all about, whether it's just going to church or praying uh, out loud, uh, giving your your offering, whatever it may be. Uh, religion has a bad way of turning, turning its, its entire self into those things and ignoring the truth. So today's message for Isaiah 58 is uh, titled Religious Practice as Cover-Up. The reason why we say that is um, it's using these, these things you do in your life that, that make you seem like a good Christian and a good uh, follower of, uh, and using them to cover up what is, is truly in your heart and what's truly going on in your life, uh, the things that God really cares about. Um, I thought about this uh, not too long ago. When, when Grady was born, when our son was born here in Malaysia, our families came, uh, and I was taking my parents and my uh, niece and my brother to uh, Batu Caves, and I took a wrong turn. Uh, if anybody's ever ridden with me, road rage is my biggest struggle. Um, but I took a wrong turn, and the wrong turn I took cost me like 10 minutes and two tolls. You know, I had to like go through a toll booth, turn around, come back through the toll booth, uh, and I punched the steering wheel. And my dad said, well, some things never change. Um, And I was just like, it was convicting. It was funny, but it was convicting because those are the kind of things we're talking about. You do these things that on the outside make you look like such a great person, and then you realize you have like a short fuse, anger issues, and you punch steering wheels. Um, So we're going to get right into this by reading the first five verses of chapter 58. um, And uh, we'll get started from there. So Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 5 says... Uh, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. If they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Because in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. 
Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So starting in verse 1, uh, God is calling Isaiah uh, to charge Isaiah or to charge Israel with their wrongs. It's this proclamation of sin. This is what you're doing wrong. So he's announcing the problem. This is the issue. He tells Isaiah, he says, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. So he's just saying, Isaiah, tell them what the problem is because they clearly don't see it. And then verse 2, it tells us what this problem is, what they're doing wrong. And it seems positive in the very beginning. It says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. But then the key word, the next two words there is as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So it's like they come to me, they come to my temple, they do fasting, they do sacrifice, they do prayer, they do all these things that are in the law as if they were a nation that did righteousness. The NIV kind of makes it a little more clear. And instead of saying they delight to know my ways, it says they seem eager to know my ways. It's all, it's all on the outside. It's external. It's not a real desire, as if you were a nation that did righteousness. It's telling them you, you're still doing all the things that were in the law. Your religious practice is still there. You are still uh, doing the fast. You're still making the sacrifices. The priests and the Pharisees, the problems that we still see in the New Testament, they're still memorizing the Torah. They still know all of this knowledge, but their actions do not follow up with that. We see in verses 3 through 5, it starts with a question. Israel asks God, they say, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take knowledge of it? And God tells them, Because behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Think about the things they're doing. So they're doing this thing that on the, in, in itself, fasting is a good thing. God calls us to fast. It draws us near to Him. It makes us dependent on Him. It allows us to get closer to Him spiritually. It's a good thing. And God called on them to do this. But think about how wrongly they're doing it. It says, on your day of your fast... You're hitting people. You're oppressing your workers. You're violent. You're doing the wrong things during this. And what it is is worthless, hypocritical religious practice. It's just, it's like putting on a camouflage or a cloak and covering up what you really are. And that's what he's telling them. You do all these things. Look how look on the outside, but on the inside, you're not doing the things that I've told you to do forever. Um... I don't know really what kind of like history everybody teaches in, in, um, in this part of the world, but as, as a lot of you know, in the United States, uh, for like 200 years, uh, we had African slavery. Uh, it was a terrible institution, purely evil, uh, and basically tribes in Africa would go to war against each other, and they would take their prisoners, uh, and they would sell them to slave traders who would then bring them um, to the Western world. In the southern United States, where I happen to be from, um, the economy ran on slave labor. Uh, all of the crops and all of the livestock, uh, everything that happened basically ran on slave labor. What was so crazy about this is that the American South of this time was not one of like, the most Christian places in the world. A lot of these slave owners were pastors. Almost all of them uh, claimed to be 
um, committed to Christ and disciples of Christ while actually owning beings and mistreating them. The kinds of things they did were just purely evil. Everybody knows, you've probably seen in movies, that they whipped people who didn't uh, work hard enough or who didn't pick enough cotton or who didn't do things the right way. But there were worse things than the physical violence. There would be families, there would be women and, and husbands with children, and they would sell them and separate them where uh, the husband was at one plantation hundreds of miles away from his wife and children never to see them again. There were lots of really evil things about the institution of slavery, and yet the people who perpetuated it, that's probably not the right word, who continued it, um, they claimed to be followers of Christ. They never missed a Sunday of church, probably weekly gatherings. They prayed in public. They gave their offerings. They evangelized. They did all these things that made them look like good people on the outside, and they actually used Scripture to justify the owning of slaves. I'm not going to get into that today. We don't have time, but if you ever want an interesting read, they used the curse of Ham of Noah's sons as justification for uh, the enslaving of another race. There was a guy in the U.S., really famous abolitionist, which just means someone who fought for the freedom of slaves and for the uh, ending of the institution. His name was Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was famous for a lot of reasons. He was very intelligent. Um, he was, uh, fought very hard for uh, the freedom of slaves, and he's also known as having some of the greatest hair uh, of anybody in history. But he's talking about the Christianity of the American South at that time, and he said this, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. This is what we're talking about in Israel at the time also. They had Yahweh worship, which started when he calls Abraham, and he's like, you're going to be my people, and you're going to bless the nations around you. And then he gives all, them all the law and all the temple worship and all the ways they were to associate with God. And by the time you get to Isaiah's time, it had fallen so far, it didn't even resemble that Yahweh worship anymore, that correct worship of God. It was nothing like that anymore. It was just like what Frederick Douglass said. It's like there's no reason but the most deceitful one for this religion, Christianity. It was the same way. It's like you can't even say that you're worshiping the God of Israel anymore because of how far you've fallen. And there's modern examples of this too. We have leaders like Ravi Zacharias and Carl Lentz where you, they, they reach millions of people. They write books. They have lectures. They're doing all these things that you think, ah, oh, what a godly man, and then you uncover what was happening in their actual life. You see in the Catholic Church when we had the scandal with so many of the clergy being involved in uh, child abuse and sexual abuse. You can look so good on the outside and have everything going on where everybody thinks like, wow, what a great Christian, what a great Christ follower. And in reality, you're just covering up the things and the problems of your life. I always think about this. One of the main things that uh, you can do in public is pray at the table. You bless your meal before you eat, right? Uh, in the U.S., this is not 
uh, as big a deal. But then when you come to a country where the majority religion is different, it feels a little more, um, you know, awkward or it's a little more stand like it stands out a little bit more to pray at the table in public before you, you pray. And it kind of causes some people like a little bit of pride, like, oh, I don't care how many people are around. Like, I'm going to pray out loud, make sure everybody knows I'm praying to Christ. And it's a great thing to do. We're not saying that it's not. But you can do all those kinds of things, those external displays of religiosity, these external displays of righteousness, but it doesn't cover up for what's going on in your heart. The book of Malachi, um, the last book of the New Testament, a lot of it, the theme is um, the, the priests, the priesthood, and how far um, they have gone from correctly serving God. And in Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, God says this to the priests. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This is a religious practice that has gotten so bad that what God tells priests is, I wish you would just close the doors of the temple. God is literally saying, you know what's better than what you're doing? Nothing at all. He says, I would like for you to just lock the temple up, put the fire out, and not do any of this anymore. That is preferable to what you are doing. I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. What had happened to the priesthood at this time is they had just gotten to where as long as we do these actions, God will be happy. Like all we have to do is continue to make these sacrifices, continue to do these things. It doesn't matter what we're doing in our lives. The fact that we're oppressing people, it doesn't mean anything. All that matters is that we keep doing all these things that God commanded us to do. And God used His prophets over and over and over again to tell them God has a serious interest in what's in your heart and what you're really feeling. That is what He cares about. And he keeps telling them that over and over again. So moving on to verses 6 and 7, what we see here is the contrasting true religious practice. God's going to tell them what he really wants. Starting verse 6, he says, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. God's deep concern for all people. He says, you know, you want to do your fast and, and you want it to draw you near to me. And that's a great thing. But what I want you to do is take care of people. He says, let the oppressed go free. Share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. This is the contrast to what they've done in the past. They're fasting while beating people and oppressing people. And he says, this is what I want you to do. While you're fasting, I want you to feed the poor and bring in the homeless. We see throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, that God has this deep concern for all of humanity. And He wants them to be taken care of. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, very famous verse, God tells us what He truly desires, not this, this hypocritical religious practice, but what He truly wants from us. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What He's telling them is, 
in, in this same, in Micah, it's the same concept. It's like you, you're still doing all these things, but what I want you to know is that I want you to be a just people. I want you to be kind. I want you to love people, and I want you to be a humble servant of God. That's what God desires. Today's scripture reading was from Hosea chapter 6 when he says, What I desire is steadfast love and not sacrifice. I want you to treat people right. Jesus uses that scripture in Matthew when he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, learn what it means when I say I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. It's kind of crazy to me when you leave the prophetic books like Isaiah and you go several hundred years in the future to Jesus' time and the Pharisees are having the exact same problems. They still did the same things and had the same in their heart and the same issues in their mind. And that's because as people, that's always going to be so tempting for us. If there's a way that we can take shortcuts and make things easier, we'll do it. Using this religious practice as cover-up is something that is so tempting to us to do things that make us look good when maybe on the end that's not the truth. God really wants us to take care of other people and not doing so voids these external acts of religious tradition. When you're a sinful person, when you've got these, these problems in your life and you're doing the wrong things, it doesn't matter that you never miss church, never miss small group, pray out loud, lead small group, whatever else it is you do, you can't cover up for it. You could even do like a seven-day fast. And if you were mean to people the whole time, God wouldn't care that you were fasting for seven days. And you'd probably be so hungry that you would definitely be mean to people the entire time. You'd be really hard to get along with. But the point of all of these scriptures and all of this is, is having a right relationship with God. And the last half of this chapter, verses 8 through 14, it's a description of what happens and the benefits of having a right relationship with Him. So we're going to read 8 through 14, so uh, verse 8 through the end of the chapter. It says, so if you do these things, if you have the right way, it says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you lay the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise, raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restraints to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath day a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what we see in these verses is that when you please God, when you have that right relationship with Him, you enjoy the benefits therein. I, earlier we saw them ask the question, Israel said like, why do you not you know, receive our fast? Why are you not answering when we call? And God told them in verse 4, 
like fasting like yours will not make your verse heard on high, will not make your voice heard on high. So there's this contrast. Poor religious practice and not having the right place in your heart, not being in right relationship. That's in one thing. And then verses 8 through 14 tell us the difference, what it's like when we have a right relationship with God. So we see six benefits um, in these verses, and we're going to talk about those really quick. Starting in verse 8, we see healing. Healing is a benefit of having that right relationship with God. It says, Then shall your light break forth like dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. We know as a uh, Bible-believing church that we're, we're not a prosperity gospel church and that healing is not always guaranteed from physical sickness. God decides in His providence and in His will if He's going to heal people from physical sickness. But healing comes in a lot of different ways. God may heal your physical ailments. He might heal your relationships that have been broken. He can heal your spiritual brokenness, your emotional brokenness. He can heal lots of different things in your life. And having a correct, right relationship with Him is a way to bring that healing to your life. If you have broken relationships and then you start following Christ with everything you have in the right way, those relationships are so much more likely to be healed and be uh, made whole again. The second thing we see is protection, also in verse 8. It says, Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory shall be your rear guard. So the rear guard is just a military term for um, a group of soldiers that would guard the backside uh, of a regiment to make sure that someone wasn't coming from the back. So what we have is protection from God. We've talked about it so many times that when we go through our daily life, we never know exactly where God is protecting us. You could probably go at the end of the day and be like, ah, at no point during this day did God protect me from something. You have no way of knowing that. You never know when like a construction worker almost dropped a block from 40 stories above your head, but he didn't. You never know. You never know how God is protecting you. And having a right relationship with Him, He will protect you. He protects us physically. He also protects us spiritually. If you have a right relationship with Him and you're not having sin problems and sin patterns in your life, you're protected from the ills of sin. Sometimes people think, especially before you become a Christian, that sin is just a way to like kill all the fun in life, right? You're like, ah, sin is just not fun. It is like, well, if you don't sin, then you're not having fun. But in reality, God, He established sins as things that have physical harm. Like, you will be harmed by sin. God restricts us from doing these things because He knows it's what's best for us. So if you don't do those sins, you are protected from the ills of those sins. If you think the easy, obvious example is, if you don't cheat on your spouse, you're probably not going to have a broken family as a, result, as a result of adultery. So you're protected from these evils of sin, the things that hurt you. The third thing we see is power prayers in verse 9. He says, Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. So like I said earlier, we saw there, like, we're, we're coming to you, why do you not answer? And God says, because your activity is not going to make your voice heard. But then when you do things the right way, He says, you shall call and the Lord will answer. Proverbs 15, 29, I have on the board said, the Lord is far from the wicked through the prayer of the righteous. When you have that right relationship with God and you're connected to Him, your prayers are so much more powerful. You feel so much closer to Him. Before you're saved, sin has a wedge between God that cannot be removed except through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
When you're a lost person, you have that sin wedge that you cannot remove. But once you accept Jesus, you become close to God. But when you let sin come back into your life, although you can be separated from God again, sin can create a wedge that distances you from Him, that makes that relationship feel not as close. And you need to have that removed. Our prayers are always more powerful and we feel so much more connected to God when we are close to Him and we don't have that sin barrier between us. It's just like a, a marriage relationship when the two spouses are happy and they're super, uh, they're getting along very well, things are great, you know, the relationship is good, but if one of them has done something wrong, there is that tension until, you know, somebody apologizes or uh, sometimes it just takes time. The fourth thing we see is that God will guide you. Verse 11, it says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So at the very beginning in verse 8, it says, you know, your light will break forth like dawn. We see this in the darkness. God will use His light to guide you. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, it says the Lord will guide you continually. Lord leads us, the Lord leads us in our lives and tells us the directions that we need to go. He leads us in the way that we should go. And when you're in correct relationship with Him and you're close to God, that is so much more clear when you have these sin barriers in your life and you're not doing the right things, a lot of times it is so much more if you like blurry on what you should do. But God promises to guide us. He promises to show us what we need to do. The fifth thing is that God will provide for us. The, the second part of verse 11, if you do these things, it says He will satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. He's talking about in the scorched places, like in the desert, in the times of life when things are really, really hard, He will provide for you. We have to be able to trust that God is going to provide for us. We've talked a lot before about giving and how a lot of times giving is sacrificial. You know, it's, it's sacrificial when you give something that otherwise you probably needed. We've said, use the metaphor. It's not hard for someone who has a million ringgit to give one ringgit. But if you have two ringgit, giving one ringgit is a lot. But you have, to be, you have to be willing to trust God to provide for you in those things. When you trust, when you serve God in a sacrificial way, you have to trust that He will provide for you. Scripture promises us over and over and over again that He will provide for us. And the sixth thing is that you will be restored. Then verse 12 says, Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. As people, we are constantly uh, kind of up and down. We can be on such highs one day and such lows another day. And this kind of applies to our relationship with God as well. It has nothing when God is constant. But we are not. We are fickle creatures and we're always up and down, serving Him with all of our hearts one day, and the next day just doom and gloom, and God doesn't care about me. 
And so our relationship with him is almost always in a constant state of needing to be restored. Once again, 100% our fault, nothing to do with him. He's always the same and he's always there for us. And we just constantly, there's another verse in Hosea that says we are bent on turning from him. It's like we are, if any of you have ever had a toddler, um, I do now, they refuse to not walk away from you. You know, you're like, hey, go here. They're going to go the other way. Like, and you're like walking this line and they're just going to immediately veer off. That's what we're like to God. He's like, here, you go down this path, life is going to be good. And we're just like, no. And so we're almost in constant need of this restoration where, where God is constantly bringing us back to Him. As the psalm tells us with His rod and His staff, bringing us back to Him. He's our shepherd. We are like a sheep. But this verse tells us your ancient ruins will be rebuilt and your foundations will be raised up. When you have a right relationship with Him, God can restore that relationship, can restore it to the way it used to be. Because we're always going to have these down times where things are not as good as they used to be. Get back in right relationship with Him and He will restore your relationship. The last thing we want to look at in these verses is in verse 14. It tells us that when you do all these things, talking about the benefits of following God and having that right relationship with Him, it tells us that then you shall take delight in the Lord. That is such a big part of being a Christ follower is taking your delight in the Lord, having your true contentment and your true happiness in Him. When we have these other times in our life, these down points, when we're, when we're not happy, when we're not content, when our relationship is strained and we need that restoration, we're probably taking our delight and our contentment in something else. And he's just telling us, when you're right with me, when, when we're close like we're supposed to be, when you're doing things and when you're treating people the right way and worshiping me the way you're supposed to, then your delight will be in the Lord. The main point of this whole passage and a lot of the things that Isaiah talks about in, in these things is just being in right relationship with God. And it was important during this time that, you know, it started with Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to the people, to the nations around you. And they had fallen off, started being so insular, not treating people the right way and not doing things the way that God wanted them to do them. And he was telling them to get back to the right way, the right way of worship and to mend that relationship. But for us as New Testament believers, it's all about Christ. And being in right relationship with God now means having a relationship with Jesus. It's about believing in the resurrection. It's about believing that He's the Son of God, that He was crucified and rose again three days later to, to save us from our sins. Having right relationship with God now is all about Jesus. Jesus came to give us the opportunity to have that relationship with Him. And so today there's two kinds of people. You're either someone who has accepted that you are saved by Christ's sacrifice. And maybe your relationship is strained. Maybe it's sin that's causing you know, that wedge between you and you need to be reconciled. You need to be uh, restored. You can do that anytime. But if you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, then you can't have a right relationship until you do. The wedge of sin between you, the barrier of sin between you and God will be there until you let Jesus remove it. So all of the things about being in right relationship with Him is distant from you and not available to you until you remove that barrier. So as always, I ask you, if you're here and you haven't made that commitment, you haven't 
accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and trusted Him to save you, talk to somebody. You can talk to me. You can talk to one of the elders. You can talk to Eric. You can talk to Peter. Anybody will be willing to talk to you about how to make your heart right. And then if you're here and you are a believer, but your relationship with God has been strained, it's always there. He's always waiting. As we said over and over again, God doesn't change. He's constant. He's waiting on you to come back and to make that right again. It's always available to you at right relationship with Him again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You uh, for letting us come here today. We thank You for Your Word. Uh, God, we just thank You so much that You gave it to us, uh, Lord, so that we can know uh, things about Your heart and Your character and Your will for us, Lord, so that we can know what we need to do to be in right relationship with You, Lord. We thank You so much that it's not a guessing game, uh, Lord, that you don't make us uh, wonder how to be right with you, Lord, but that you've told us and you've clearly shown us, Lord, what we need to do to be your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.